Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. John Updike was considered one of the great chroniclers of middle-class American life, a novelist, short story writer, literary critic, poet, and essayist, twice winner of the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, for the novels Rabbit is Rich and Rabbit at Rest, Updike was considered one of America's greatest literary masters. Born on March 18, 1932, he spent several years at The New Yorker before breaking out with the novel Rabbit Run in 1960, which featured a former high school basketball star and, as Wikipedia says, a middle-class paragon, Harry Rabbit Angstrom, his greatest character, who would appear in four novels in all. Among his other novels were Beck, A Book, The Witches of Eastwick, and Couples. He died on January 27, 2009, at the age of 76. I had a chance to interview John Updike on June 9, 2006, while he was on tour for his novel Terrorist, which was his response to the attack on the World Trade Center on September 11, 2001. Terrorist is a departure for John Updike in that it's kind of a thriller. Now, John Updike, before we get into Terrorist itself, when you were growing up, you read mysteries and science fiction, right? I read a lot of mysteries, uh, mostly English, although uh, some Americans have read a lot of Ellery Queen, uh, Earl Stanley Gardner. Uh, maybe this is in the years from about uh, 13 to 18 when I went off to college. They gave me other assignments. Uh, I read some science fiction. And I read some Eric Ambler. He, I guess, was the real thriller writer among these authors. But yes, no, I enjoyed them. And when I became something of a writer, I thought uh, I might try this genre. But in fact, I didn't have the mentality or the brains or the appetite for it. And uh, this was as close as I've come to writing, as you say, a kind of thriller. The last 50 to 75 pages are page turners. Did you find writing them any different than your other books? Yes, I knew uh, that uh, I mean, the intention was that they would be some element of suspense and uh, they would be page-turners, and yet when you're in a page-turner mode, you can't abandon your own voice and your own approach, so it's fairly leisurely page-turning, and there's a lot of extraneous, even uh, some comic stuff uh, got into the very climax of the book. Uh, it's a thriller, but uh, an updike thriller, and shouldn't be read as if it's going to be a John le Carré You've said that what started thoughts of the book was an image of blowing up a tunnel and the water falling in. How did that image first arrive for you? Thinking of, of what might happen next, uh, the idea of a tunnel being attacked uh, certainly occurred to me. Yeah, I suppose the book did begin with an image of two guys, two men, having a discussion under very stressful circumstances in a tunnel. And uh, part of the research for this book was to be driven through the, the New York tunnels. 
one one way and one the other and uh, to check them out and look at them again. I've been through them, of course, before, but uh, there are also tunnels in Boston. You know, you go through the Callahan or the Sumner, fairly, and now the Ted, Ted Williams Tunnel uh, fairly often. There's no get, getting away from tunnels, though that doesn't make me love them. I suppose it's a fear of uh, water. As a child, I uh, was slow to learn to swim, and my father took the method of my being jumping into his arms in a swimming pool in, I think, West Reading, and I uh, somehow slipped through and inhaled a lot of water, and I remember those bubbles. I can still see them, in fact, and so whenever I go through a tunnel under a river, I'm a little haunted by the idea that the tunnel is going to break at this moment and engulf me. It's a nightmare, and one way to handle a nightmare, if you're a writer, is to write it out, and then the nightmare should go away. There were two protagonists in the book. One is a, a 63-year-old guidance counselor at a high school, and the other is a high school student who is half Egyptian and half Irish-American named Ahmad. Ahmad, you've said, he started out as a young Christian, particularly based on a character from a short story called Pigeon Feathers, and somehow there was a switch to Islam. How did that happen? Uh, the notion of religious faith uh, obviously arises when you consider contemporary terrorism in the in the Muslim world, and uh, it seems to me clear that the force of the hatred and the determination and the courage that the terrorists show does stem from religious conviction that uh, they are on God's side and uh, we are on the other side. The uh, notion that the world is a place of devils and the devils are trying to take your faith from you occurred to me, I think, first in connection with a Catholic seminary student, uh, but didn't go anywhere much, whereas uh, once I put it in the mind of an 18-year-old Muslim, it seemed to move along. It's pretty hard for me to view the world as full of devils since I tend to like the people I meet and uh, don't generally see, see devils, but the sensation that the world is out to deprive you of your religious beliefs is real enough. The older you get, the more erosion takes place, the more modification of that first ardor that many adolescents go through. There's faith and then there's a faith crisis, and uh, Ahmad has not had his crisis yet, but he perhaps begins to have it in the course of the novel. Do you think that by the time he's 63, assuming he gets to 63, and we won't discuss what happens at the end of the book, that he could ever become a Jack Levy? He could become weary of whatever life uh, he has. Uh, that's a danger. At 63, uh, I somehow can't quite picture him as another Jack Levy. Jack Levy was a, a doubter or a non-believer from the very start, although he did have Jack Levy, my guidance counselor, uh, at about the age of 13, did decide to give up the violin, which his parents were saving up their pennies to give him lessons in. So he had his own adolescent rebellion, at the same age, Ahmad decided to become a, a Muslim, go to the mosque, and his mother permissively uh, allowed it, encouraged it, and drove him there, but her, she herself was a lapsed Catholic without much orthodox religious faith at all. I'm surprised that since the book occurs after 9-11, that the mother seems to have no sense of what could be going on in the mosque. She's kind of oblivious, and that's one of his complaints against her, that she doesn't pay much attention. She is 40 and has a full-time job as a nurse's aide at the local hospital. She also is a part-time painter, and that really is her passion or her love. And she also has boyfriends. After all, uh, the Egyptian father left her when Ahmad was three, so she's finding her um, womanhood, her age of maturation, uh, 
her uh, what's that called when it's on a milk bottle? Uh, shelf time. Her shelf time is going down, and she's. But no, it wouldn't occur to her. I don't think. Uh, after all, the boy comes and goes. He seems to be a good student at school. He's no trouble. He has a part-time job at a little convenience store. So I don't think it's so strange that she wouldn't envision uh, what was hatching. You set your book, John Updike, you set terrorist in uh, a town of invention called New Prospect, New Jersey. It's not really a town of invention because it's Patterson, New Jersey, which also uh, you use in the book in, in The Beauty of the Lilies. Why Patterson, New Jersey? I first saw Patterson when I was doing research for the In the Beauty of the Lilies, which involved a Presbyterian minister who is posted in Patterson uh, and loses his faith around 1910. So in the course of trying to get a few facts of ancient Patterson uh, in order, I went over there and uh, looked in the library and also walked around the downtown. And uh, it was a pretty forlorn city at that point in the late 80s, early 90s, did have a lake of rubble in the middle. I assume they've built something now. A lot of historic buildings testifying to a past prosperity, but the present was not prosperous, and it was haunting as an image of the kind of Rust Belt eastern city uh, whose good days, if they were good days, are over. I came from the suburb, a suburb of such a city, Reading, PA, smaller city than Patterson, but... uh, same sort of thing, so I was familiar with the ambiance, and it interests me, because a lot of people spend their lives now in these cities, and the kids are born without much prospects, unlike the title of the city, and tend to turn to mischief or else leave. Ahmad is an iconic figure in the sense that he's kind of all terrorists in one, and he's also himself. Do you think much about trying to make the character individual and at the same time generic. How does that work in the writing of John Updike? Well, some uh, reviewers haven't been persuaded that he's both these things, that he's both a devout and very concentrated believer and a terrorist and also an American boy. And in writing the book, I tried to uh, keep him in mind as both. But if you make the boy part too real, one reviewer complained that he didn't seem to have any friends. But to introduce Christian or Jewish friends into this book would be a whole other pattern, a whole diversion, as I saw it, from his concentration as a character. He would become less and less iconic and eventually might be diverted from being a terrorist entirely. And it's not like he sets out to be a terrorist. He drifts into it, or rather I should say is pulled into it by uh, older people around him. So I don't know. You Writing is a matter of intuition and feel, and you feel your way as you go along. You have to trust your own instincts as to what balance uh, to strike. But yes, he does have... He's imbibed his worldview from the imam so that a lot of what he says is not original with him, and he speaks in kind of a stately, uh, borrowed, artificial manner that I got to used to and got to like. He speaks with great dignity. He is a dignified 18-year-old, in some ways more dignified than... Many 18-year-olds are. Good-looking boy, pleasant. I saw him pretty clearly by the time the book was over. I guess Jack Levy and Beth Levy in particular were much easier to write. They were a little more familiar, uh, but of course that becomes a handicap in itself if you've done a certain kind of tired adult. Often enough, uh, you, you don't put into it the freshness of invention or the will to invent that you have with a less familiar kind of character. No, it felt good to, to have a new kind of hero with him as the radius or as the center to have a radiating background of 
more or less uh, familiar, middle-class, unhappy uh, Americans. Terrorist deals with issues today. Uh, I mean, all of your books deal with American life. Certainly, the Rabbit series takes us through, what, four decades of life in America. It seems almost necessary, in a way, that now that you've completed that, that you have to still see what's going on in the center of America. It would feel that way after the fact, but I would guess before writing it, that wasn't something going on in your mind. In a strange way, this is a rabbit book without rabbit in it. It's written in the present tense. It's about the length of rabbit run and it deals with a kind of outlaw. Rabbit became a bit of an outlaw and a, a refusenik of the middle class order around him so that it bears some affinity to the rabbit books, including being located in and around a dying former industrial city. But I wouldn't push that except to say, yeah, I think some of the same uh, levers were activated by having this, this character and this setting. And it interests me because Rabbit was not quite typical, really, but in some way, the more I wrote about him, the more he did become an American uh, everyman. And in some way, all of the woes of the latter part of the 20th century uh, came home to roost in him so that he played host to a great variety of types of American disturbed persons. And so in this book, yes, I am trying to uh, create a handle in a way, uh, an instrument of insight into how terrorists think and how young people can be seduced into making great sacrifices, indeed the ultimate sacrifice. uh, The book made me think a lot about being young. It's been a long time since I was young, and uh, I read with fascination these, not just the uh, suicide bombings that occurred throughout the Middle East and now parts of Europe, but uh, also about the Columbine-type massacres, the fact that uh, young people, uh, normal or almost normal from the outside, are able to contemplate killing themselves and others. Maybe it's always been with us, the proclivity toward a dramatic gesture, toward a romantic gesture, toward absolutism. On the other hand, I have the feeling that life is just cheaper now than it was when I was a boy. All this death, all this death they're willing to engage. I wouldn't say it frightens me, but it disturbs me. I don't like reading the paper much because it's so full of this kind of bad news. But it's been going on for a while. I mean, look at World War II. Life was very cheap in the 40s. Yes, it was. Uh, Yet the ideals that the men in the trenches were dying for uh, made a kind of sense. It was the defense of the tribe uh, against them. Uh, Land, in a a way, was about land. And it's hard to see as much rationale. Not that World War I wasn't a a slaughter and a terrible mistake. It was the mistake of the 20th century because everything else flowed from it. But uh, this new kind of war, if we call it a war, I think the other side sees it as a war and we don't quite yet, although the administration does, it labels (laughs) it as a war. But it's like a war being fought only by one side with with everything they've got, whereas we're trying to fight it with with our left hand, really. Are you familiar with the Showtime series called Sleeper Cell? No, no, but I've read a little bit about it. Okay. uh, I'm afraid that if I saw it much, I might have been tempted not to write my book at all. I don't know. Tell me about it. Well, I don't want to go into too much detail here, but it involves an Arab who has recruited uh, various Americans, disaffected 
Americans into this sleeper cell. Mm -hmm. And one of them is, of course, an agent mm -hmm. who we learned fairly on that he's an early on that he's an agent, but he must hide that fact from everybody, including his girlfriend. But the others are are Americans. One is a blonde guy whose mother is a hippie. Really? Maybe it's best that you didn't. <laughs> I think it is best I didn't know in a way because uh, it sounds a little too familiar to me. I, I tried to uh, invent an interesting and, to me, uh, exciting circumstance. And now, if it's all on sleeper cell, uh, I might get gloomy about it. No, it's, th these elements are certainly in the air now. Sure. Double agents, uh, sleepers within a society, and uh, the recent headlines from Canada certainly give added credence to this kind of homegrown terrorist cell. I keep wondering, I guess maybe there's no connection, but it seems to be, if we look at how the Bush administration functions, that hiding and lying seem to be more a part of our society, and they seem accepted in a way, as long as you're not caught. Uh, well, there certainly is much to criticize, I suppose, in the way the Bush administration uh, framed the, uh, the Iraqi uh, incursion and maneuvered it. I don't know how much you'd say conscious lying was going on. I think they had purposes having to do with oil and strategic placement and the pacification, if you were, of the Muslim world that went beyond Saddam Hussein. Nevertheless, and other issues too, there seems to be a lot of um, slippery spokesman-like uh, behavior on the part of the administration. And I'm not sure it's unique to Republicans either. I think it might be that lying, we can live with lying a little more easily than we did 50 years ago. Sean Updike, Ahmad, in a weird way, is the moral center of the book in that he has a morality. And from his viewpoint, America looks really sleazy. Did you feel a danger in writing that, that you could almost identify with Ahmad? Yes, and other, other fiction, uh, including the rabbit book, certainly doesn't portray uh, America as a paradise. Uh, quite the contrary. It's, uh, in many ways, a uh, disappointing and declining and less idealistic and makes less sense than it used to. Uh, he phrases all these reservations or these observations about America now uh, more extremely than I would. However, there's some truth in what he sees, and Jack Levy sees the same thing of tired people in living in tired cities, the American obsession with uh, entertainment, with celebrity scandals, uh, the fatness of the population overall been much deplored. The fact that we don't seem to make much anymore, all those factory buildings that stand around throughout the Northeast and elsewhere are empty and everything is made uh, abroad. All this is, I think, kind of demoralizing, at least to somebody who knew another America, the America that fought World War II, that was made a lot of things. It supplied not only ourselves but our allies and uh, was a country where whatever it's crudities and uh, cruelties within, and it wasn't the economic, it wasn't paradise for the working men and women. Nevertheless, uh, there was a kind of sense to it, and you could see what you made, and uh, the utility and usefulness of fighting that global war was self-evident. So we've lost a lot of the certainties and flattering self-assumptions that we used to have. There's also a conflict in your book between realism and satire. You've got the realist story of Jack and Beth and Ahmad and Ahmad's presumed girlfriend. And then you've got these chapters that take place in Washington involving 
what appears to be Tom Ridge, and the, though he's not named, and the uh, Department of Homeland Security. Was there a tendency to satirize where you had to pull back because the balance would be lost? Yeah, I'm not really a, a much of a satiric writer, though I guess some of the Henry Beck stories about a, a Jewish New York writer could be called a satire. My first title for this book was Land of Fear, and it was prompted in part by the uh, enigma of these color coding that the Department of Homeland Security was asking us to trust and to be aware of, and yellow turning to orange, and a different kind of behavior seemed to be suggested. And it had the effect, really, of accentuating the low fever of fear that accompanies the post-9-11 world. I liked the idea of writing about Washington. I've been there enough to have some feeling for the peculiar climate of that place. These people running the country are at the same time kind of isolated from the country. They live in these enormous white buildings and, uh, well, they're almost islanded in the District of Columbia. But yes, I couldn't do too much of that and uh, maybe shouldn't have done any of it, except it does play into the plot eventually. It does matter that Jack Levy's sister works for the Department of Homeland Security. So some link existed between uh, the government, remote as it seems to most Americans, and these local events. I don't know what I feel. I feel that there are enough bushophobes uh, in the world to uh, supply the satire needed on the present administration. I didn't want to be enlisted among them especially, but it's hard to write about politicians without getting somewhat uh, satirical and uh, funny or trying to be funny. John Updike, we started the interview talking a little about what you read as, uh, as a kid. You wanted to be an illustrator and then somehow moved into writing. And here we are some 50-odd years later, when you look back, do you see any overall broad scope to your writing? Uh, I know that someone at one point used the phrase, the sheer intractability of the human predicament to describe what you are writing about. Do you ever think in those broad terms? I wouldn't, haven't coined that phrase, but it's not bad, and it does uh, fit, I think. Uh, I feel that just to be a thinking animal is a kind of paradox, and that the human animal, unlike uh, dogs, cats, ostriches, uh, and microbes, doesn't, uh, they don't foresee their own death, whereas we do. We live with this foreknowledge that we're going to, uh, to die. We also have a, a very active brain feeding into our sex instinct. So both these parts of being a live organism, uh, dying and sex, I think uh, warp our capacity for happiness, for bliss. Uh, we have moments of bliss, but they also are moments of self-forgetfulness or forgetfulness of our full predicament. So I guess I do have a kind of pessimistic take on certain kinds of human unhappiness or tension or dissatisfaction being inevitable. And there is no uh, happy land, there is no political system that will deliver us from our own, what Freud called normal human unhappiness. Joyce Carol Oates has compared you to Joseph Conrad. How do you feel about that one? I feel great about it. I, I wonder <laughs> how she justifies uh, uh, that comparison, though. No, I, th I love Conrad. He's a very noble, a noble writer, and uh, at every minute, somehow very serious. Uh, that seriousness, I'm not sure, is my, my uh, shtick. You've had courses taught on your work. In that context, how does that affect you as a writer? Does it affect you as a writer? <clears throat> and as a corollary to that, you also do a lot of criticism, particularly in The New Yorker. And how does that affect you as a writer of fiction? 
Uh, the fact that uh, there may be a college course or two that uh, assigns some of my works doesn't really, it's not like I'm in the class or have to teach it. So it, it's really something that happens uh, externally, and I don't think much about it, although I'm flattered, I guess, that uh, I get some academic attention. Good. That's, you know, future readers, uh, they can catch the young and the young like me, then I have some more readers uh, in the future. You're always afraid of, of outliving your readers. That is, as a spokesman, I've been called of my generation. That, that means my generation is a dying generation right now. So I'm pleased but kind of distant. Uh, the re reviews, I can't say I'm distant since I'm the one who reads the book and writes the review. It's a way of keeping my name in The New Yorker. It's a way of establishing a kind of contact with an institution. I don't teach. Uh, I'm pretty much alone in my freelancer condition, and uh, it's... Uh, I, th I think relatively harmless uh, for me to do a book review once a month or so uh, for The New Yorker and some other publications, too. The New York Review of Books has uh, cajoled me into being an art critic, and uh, I'm really over my head there, but enjoy it. I enjoy the going to a museum with a task and writing the review and trying to express. So you mentioned my early ambitions. I wanted to be a cartoonist. I loved comic strips in the paper and comic books, and many kids do, uh, but uh, I would copy them and fancied myself in the future. You know, I studied articles that talked about famous cartoonists, Al Cap and Chester Gould, and how they functioned and where they learned. And it was an era when there was a lot of ads in the papers saying, learn to be a cartoonist, uh, lessons by mail and whatnot. By the time I went to college, though, I thought uh, my talent, if any, probably lay in the written word. And you can kind of cartoon in words. And the words are what has found a market and uh, supported me. And uh, I don't regret not becoming a cartoonist, though I still look at cartoons with a, a good eye. I, I like to a good, a well-drawn cartoon is a source of pleasure for me. Well, how do you feel about this latest trend toward graphic novels? I'm torn about it. On the one hand, I like it as this new art form. On the other hand, I wonder if it's a debasement of some kind. I find them hard to read. Uh, I've tried, and uh, though I, I'm a great follower of comic strips, uh, somehow the uh, subtler intention uh, uh, is not just storytelling at a fanciful level or trying to raise a, a daily smile, but it's a uh, they're kind of ambitious, and I'm not persuaded that there's going to be a masterpiece come out of this form. I hate to say it since, uh, in theory, I'm all for it. I even put graphic elements in some of my earlier poetry and a few short stories. I mean, I played with using pictures as sort of ideograms on the page, but I decided that in my own work, at least, the words had to do it all, that it's a, it's a bastardization to bring in a pictographic element, although Donald Bartholomew did it quite a lot and kind of persuasively. I'm really talking through my hat in a way because I've not settled down to read a stack of graphic novels, but uh, I'm not yet convinced that uh, this is anything more than a, a side genre. John Updike, how do you separate art from entertainment? Do you? Art should be entertaining in some way. It should also be instructive. Horace defined poetry as giving delight and giving instruction. So uh, entertainment I take to be devoid of much instructional content, although really it can have that too. And also who are you entertaining, I think, enters in. What is entertaining to a 
collegiate type who doesn't mind sitting down with Umberto Eco or Vladimir Nabokov and finds it terribly entertaining. The average reader probably won't find it so entertaining. Some reading uh, demands uh, knowledge of what else has been written and you're playing with a form that has a certain history and has already achieved certain peaks. So uh, it's tricky to know uh, when you've stopped being entertaining and it has become purely boring and didactic. I think my books are somewhat difficult, really. Uh, not as difficult as many, but they're not really uh, designed or have become a bestsellers. I had one bestseller, and I was kind of embarrassed in those weeks when it was on the list. I just felt as though I was there under false pretenses. <laughs> that was couples, yeah, right? Couples, <laughs> yeah, couples. And the Witches of Eastwick did okay, but uh, I'm very ambivalent about how wide I would like my audience to be. Uh, you sort of want it, but then you don't want to... You want to write at the top of your form, whatever it is, and write stuff that would entertain you, but doesn't have to entertain everybody. I was reading earlier today an interview that you'd conducted probably 10 or 15 years ago talking about the relationship of style and plot in books. In a broader sense, style and substance, it seems to me that over the past 7 to 10 years, and I'm getting a lot of books in the mail, you're doing a lot of reviewing. It seems to me when I look at film, when I look at books, when I look at the internet, we're seeing the triumph of style over substance. Beautifully written books that say nothing, beautifully filmed movies that show nothing, and, you know, content, quote unquote, on the internet disappearing in favor of useless graphics, or at least they seem to me useless graphics. I think it's hard to know, it's hard to locate what the modern or postmodern uh, subject uh, should be. Uh, the novel began as a book of instruction to the lower orders of society as to how the middle class and upper orders behaved. So they were read almost as how to be a gentleman, how to be a lady. They also have a function of taking you to places where you yourself are not going to go so that the exotic, the foreign land and so on are all interesting. But what the purpose of a, of a work of fiction now is, I'm not entirely uh, clear on it. You write, you write out of your gut and your awareness of contemporary issues just certainly plays into it. Terrorist is a book of this century and not last. But I think there are a lot of well-educated people now in the arts who are there because they liked the arts and who have been instructed at college or elsewhere to achieve certain skills, but they don't really uh, have the necessary simplicity that works of genius uh, have. You know, in the end, Proust and Joyce and Dickens and Tolstoy were trying to say fairly elemental things, and it's the loss of the elemental maybe that we feel in the, in the arts. Uh, they're all a little too clever and sly. Do you feel now, um, it's several years since Rabbit at Rest, do you feel that maybe you killed him off prematurely? My feeling was and still is that uh, had I uh, prolonged him another 10 years, he would have been in danger of becoming a comic strip character that just wouldn't die. But to be, he is a, meant to be a specimen American, and real people die. He was real enough to me that I thought uh, we should look at his, uh, his death, too. Writing that last book, Rabbit at Rest, was in a way painful because uh, I was killing him by inches, word for word. My father was already dead. My mother was ailing and in and out of hospitals, and I wasn't feeling so well myself at that point. I had a kind of heart pains, uh, chest pains. So it was a way of embracing uh, death 
for me. And actually, uh, when once he got down to Florida and uh, began to really die, uh, I felt kind of cheerful. Uh, rather that than now, now he would be, he's always a year younger than I, so uh, he'd be 73. And what do I have to say about a 73-year-old rabbit that I haven't said about the 56-year-old rabbit? So no, I can't regret that. I did provide a sequel when his children got together in a book called Rabbit Remembered, where he figures as kind of a ghost. That's about as much as I think I can do. I know it's hard. Uh, people loved him. I loved him. He's very good to me. Most of my prizes came from the Rabbit books. Nevertheless, I wanted it. I thought he, he needed the dignity of a decent burial. Uh, and the, the series needed closure, needed to be wrapped up and rendered intact. And I'm on my own now, trying to write what I can about terrorists or <laughs> Gertrude and Claudius in Hamlet. You know, I, yeah, I'm, on, I'm on the loose, as it were. Mentioning Gertrude and Claudius, um, obviously you're not the first person to take Hamlet in different directions. You know, we saw Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. In the coup, you kind of turn Nabokovian, looking at an alternative pale fire in a way. Do you, do you feel that there are no limits to the directions that you can go in at that point? You have to be hopeful uh, in life and in art. And uh, I've tried these things as experiments, knowing that uh, they, they could be uh, failed experiments. But uh, no, it's, it's writing should be uh, fun. Uh, novels should be fun, and uh, they should have a sense of uh, play to them, of uh, the mind, the human mind, uh, entertaining itself. It's hard for me to think, frankly, of, of some major field of life truth that I haven't attempted to explore in some way so that I have no novel in my head that I want to get to once the terrorist uh, has receded. I may never write another novel, though I still feel pretty healthy, but maybe one will come. Always in my life, I've been working on sort of my last idea, and <laughs> it's not like I have a whole file of future books like Dostoevsky did. I, I hope that when, when my mind is relatively blank and my life is relatively uncluttered, uh, something will occur to me. What do you think is the role of the artist or the writer in terms of politics or the social setting? A writer is a citizen as well as being a writer and certainly will have certain opinions and uh, shouldn't try to keep those opinions out of his uh, fiction. On the other hand, a book that tells us uh, how to vote or even how to feel, how to, uh, what causes to back, I think, is in danger of becoming merely one-dimensional and propagandistic and of of rather little worth as a novel. The very nature of uh, fiction, which moves from character to character with some sympathy and understanding for everybody, uh, should preclude any uh, simple messages as far as politics go. Uh, I was, uh, however, there are politics in my uh, novels and in my life. I was raised as a Roosevelt Democrat by a father and a mother who had turned to Roosevelt in the Depression. And that has pretty much uh, stayed with me. Uh, I've lived most of my adult life now under Republican administrations uh, that I didn't vote for. But uh, I, I'm not certainly a rabid uh, anti-Republican. Uh, I think some, uh, both parties should get some power now and then just to know what it's like to hold the power. Obviously, holding the power is one thing. And not, not really having it and being able to criticize other people's decisions is another we're living in a strange time. We won the Cold War, everybody agreed, uh, and the collapse of the Soviet Union or the withdrawal of the Soviet Union from international challenge has 
released a lot of demons, as far as we can tell. It's not been paradise, uh, and uh, we're at a loss, really, how to combat our new enemies. I do have in the new novel a, a, a little portrait, a, a passing portrait of the Homeland Secretary of the Homeland Security, whatever his title is, and uh, although I make some fun of him, um, I basically think he's trying to do something that has to be done and it's kind of impossible to do, to supervise closely a, a two, uh, 300 million people uh, who are trying to uh, uphold ideas of freedom and personal choice and not, not be robots under some totalitarian system is, is tough. I feel American freedom dwindling away in little bits, just being able to walk onto an airplane without having to prove you're who you are, kind of a luxury that we enjoyed and didn't appreciate it when we had it. I sometimes feel as if we entered this other world when George W. Bush became president. I don't perceive him to be a standard Republican by any means. The fundamentalist Christianity and the corruption all happening at once. Maybe it's because I'm 20-odd years younger than you, but I see something different going on here. Do you? Well, I certainly don't sympathize with the uh, attempt to subvert uh, Roe versus Wade and other liberal Supreme Court judgments, and uh, it makes me, I, uh, you know, it's a lot that I don't like, the fuss over legal marriage, the attempt to build into the Constitution that you should only marry someone of the opposite gender. I, I can't say I'm enthusiastic about any of that. On the other hand, George Bush won a narrow victory the first time, and a maybe. pretty, pretty <laughs> emphatic. Yeah, maybe a pretty emphatic one the second time. So, uh, as an American, I have to face the fact that, uh, given a choice between John Kerry and George Bush, uh, the country chose more four more years of George Bush. We're not going to get four on top of that, though. So. Uh, Let's look to the future and hope we get a change of atmosphere uh, in the White House. You had a character named Robert Angstrom, kind of an everyman American. Uh, you said in the 80s that he would have been a Reagan supporter. Would he have been a George W. Bush supporter? Hard to be sure without Rabbit here to testify on his own <laughs> behalf. I think he'd have reservations, but always Rabbit... Uh, tends to defend the standing president. He tends to see the good in the president, maybe maybe because he doesn't want to be president himself. Uh, it's important that we respect our president, I believe, uh, in a system that uh, the bigger we get, uh, I think the harder it is to hold the country together. Uh, so uh, I can't, on the other hand, no, I don't think he'd be a Bush, a Bush supporter. Uh, I think he would have liked, he's a Korean War vet in a way himself. He would have voted for um, John Kerry. Have you gotten any political feedback on your book, Terrorists, John Updike? Uh, a little, I expect. I've given a lot of interviews. Uh, the, to me, it's a, a book about religion uh, more than politics in a strange way. It's about his religious life and, by extension, how religion plays a big part in the present Islam extremist uh, movement. I haven't read all the reviews. I'm not sure I ever will. Uh, no doubt there's some political objection uh, or some political comments being made, but it's, in my mind, not, not a very political book. We can all agree that terrorist acts are to be deplored, and uh, yet the book asks you to believe that it's is other human beings who perpetrate them. Ahmad is a human, and I tried to show that, uh, a kind of even of good intentions of a warped we think, sort going into his terrorism. 
you know, the novelist has an obligation, in a sense, to show shades of gray, a good novelist. Oh, yes, I quite agree. I'm a gray man all the way, and uh, you must try to take all sides. And it's, it's sort of where the life of ideas enters into a novel is when you get debates, either specific ones or, or uh, implied debates between characters uh, when they're presenting their own point of view. Absolutely. Uh, I think we are living in a gray world where we can't be too sure that we're, we're all white. Nobody's all white. There is much truth, in a way, in the Islamic distru- the extreme Islamic distrust of, uh, of the American way of life. Uh, I think a lot of Americans criticize the American way of life. It's, it's made us fat and greedy and lazy in a way can be achieved only at the expense of a great many limited resources. So we're sort of burning up the world's gas, and um, uh, we shouldn't be uh, too proud of ourselves. The last 20 or 30 pages of the book, uh, putting aside the thriller element of it, uh, consists of a dialogue between a point-of-view character named uh, Jack Levy and Ahmad, who's our young terrorist. Ahmad, the idealist, versus Levy... The cynic? I'm just wondering, when you were doing that, is, are those kind of two sides of John Updike? Well, both voices can be heard uh, within you. Uh, at one point, uh, Levy says to him, uh, don't you feel, how can you really think about killing all these innocent people? And uh, Ahmad uh, very quickly says, who says that non-believers are innocent? Non-believers say that. So there you have the sort of the two possible sides. I enjoyed that discussion. They, they also discovered they have a lot of common ground. In fact, they've both been disappointed in romance, uh, and they both underwent boyhood revolts uh, in a way. So they're not entirely different. But yes, they, they uphold. And, and debates in fiction are, are fun for the writer since you can spread out the various v- viewpoints possible. But uh, what did Ezra Pound say? Art... Art is not opinions, and so above all, you are trying to tell a story and uh, paint a picture. I have one more question to ask you, and this is because a friend of mine begged me to ask you. He is a huge fan of your light verse and your poetry. When you're writing that, how does that make you feel in the context of the rest of your work? My first acceptance at the New Yorker was a piece of light verse, and it's something that I thought I could do even as an adolescent. I mean, I read there was a lot of light verse around, and I liked the idea of making people laugh or smile. It seemed a worthy, harmless activity, and so I wrote a lot of light verse uh, in high school and then in college, and a fair amount in the first five years of my uh, published life. When you write light verse, you're trying to uh, generally rhyme and uh, observe a strict meter. So all this is discipline in a way that maybe helps you write better prose, too. As to my verse that isn't light, and there's a fair amount of that also, uh, to use language at the highest pitch to which you're able to bring it compressed and uh, many-layered, many-forked is, I think, a very good exercise for a prose writer, even if he never writes uh, great poetry. A page of prose ought to have some of the charms of a poem. You could be able to read it twice and get something out of it the second time. In, in a way, it should have a value. The words, the language should have a value beyond just delivering certain images and facts. You want it to have a life of its own, a certain musical life, you could say. And writing poetry has helped me try to breathe some music into my prose.
You've been listening to an interview with the late novelist John Updike, who died in 2009 at the age of 76. The interview was recorded in the KPFA studios on June 9, 2006, while he was on tour with his novel, Terrorist. After Terrorist, he would only publish one more novel, The Widows of Eastwick, a sequel to The Witches of Eastwick. His collected stories were published in two volumes in 2013. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>